The Gist is sponsored by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase. The promo code GIST. That's harrys.com and the promo code GIST. And by Trunk Club. Answer a few simple questions about your look, style, and size and receive a trunk full of great-looking clothes that fit perfectly and make you look amazing. Only pay for the clothes you keep and the shipping's free. Go to trunkclub.com slash gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, September 16th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. An English row. A bitraversy. Yeah, sure, we're all geeked up over here for the Republican debate tonight, but let's spend a while talking about someone who's not only a liberal, but I'm going to say it. This guy is un-American. He's Jeremy Corbyn, he's the British labor leader, and he did not sing God Save the Queen. Prominent politicians simply have to stand and sing God Save the Queen in England, and I am no expert on cause and effect or shields and urinal, but MPs have been singing God Save the Queen for years, and the Queen is 89 years old. Just saying, unlike shields and urinal. But imagine my surprise as I was listening to the BBC this morning, where one British expert told one British newsreader about a country which, I don't know, maybe they've never visited before. To Americans, they hold this song despite hating it. It only became the national anthem in 1931 in America, and that was very reluctantly. They hate the song. They hate the Star Spangled Banner. It's too long. It's too difficult to sing. It's a British drinking song. They only adopted it really reluctantly. Yeah, we hate it. We hate our national anthem. Good to hear that, Sir Trevor Twitch Twaddle. I soon hope to accept an invitation to go on CNN to discuss why the English hate Paddington Bear. The English think of Paddington Bear as a bit of a wanker. Oh, and tea. They loathe tea. I, but why would I be speaking in a British accent on CNN? Because they love that. They love when Americans do the British accent. All right. I will allow that Sir Twit Twaddle did say that Americans have grown to love the national anthem. But still, tosh, piffle. In the spiel, I will talk about the forgiveness bestowed upon one American politician by an unusually unforgiving press corps. So how do I go from there, an American politician, to I was just in England? What's the divide? Canada. I'm going to go through Canada. It's sort of a middle ground. And first, I'm going to stop in South Africa, and we'll check in on their nuclear stockpile. But first, to the Great White North, where we take a look at the evolving Canadian accent. September 29th at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York, The Gist will be having a live show. And I, right now, am going to reveal the headline special guest. I'm going to pause. Maybe I'll just filibuster because I'm giving everyone who downloads this show the second it comes out a second to go to the website, slate.com slash NYCGist, and buy tickets now. Because as soon as I say the name, it's going to be an onslaught. It's going to be hard to get these tickets. So do it now before I announce that the special guest is Samantha B. Samantha B. of The Daily Show. She's starting her own show on TBS. She's a funny, funny woman. She's Canadian. So not only will Samantha be there, not only will an equally wonderful musical guest be there, I can't announce this guy's name. I'm sorry to have to play this game with you. There are a lot of restrictions on our friends, but I will tell you who's going to be there. My 10-pound lady balls. Chris Wurtz will make a cocktail. Zoe Chase will be there. 
that never fails to delight. Adam Davidson can't stop that guy from talking. Matthew Dix will tell a story. Maria Konnikova will play as that bullshit. Chris Malamphy will be counting down the hits from a very special year. The gist live, it's not just a panel discussion. It's a possible catastrophe. But be there. September 29th, Brooklyn, the Bell House, Slate.com slash NYC gist for tickets. So a leading presidential candidate here in America talks about being politically incorrect. Everyone is just so beholden to political correctness. Well, this harkens back to another politician, a Canadian politician. In fact, his name is Rob Ford. Maybe you remember the former Toronto mayor. And it also harkens back to the fact that even in these days of political correctness, there's one thing that you can get away with, and that's making fun of the Canadian accent, or at least noticing it, like a boot, how they say a boot. They don't really say a boot. In fact, here's Rob Ford saying that word. This is an insult to my constituents to even think about having a, war, uh, a homeless shelter in their ward. But I've got big news about the Canadian accent. Big changes are a boot. I'll stop it. I know I'm insulting the Canadians. Turns out the Canadian accent is itself changing. And joining me now is sociolinguist Paul Decker, who has been studying this accent shift. Hello. Hello. Okay, let's go with the big elephant in the room. How do Canadians, and I know Canada is a big place and they might say it differently, but how do Canadians really say about? You're right. There is a lot of variation in that pronunciation of that word but if you listen to me i'll say it one way i'll say i'll say it the i'll say it the canadian way so about mm-hmm. really and then the thing to contrast the thing to compare it with is another word let's let's actually let's take the words house and house right okay so it has the same vowel as about it has the ow sound and in house it's what we call raised it's a little bit higher it's pronounced a little bit higher in the mouth compared to house Okay, so house, house. Got it. So that's the difference. Is about one of the words that's changing as the Canadian accents change? About is pretty stable, but there's different vowels that are undergoing a change in this Canadian vowel shift. All right, take me through it. At the top, we have the vowel in the word pit. So the is sound. Mm-hmm. Pit sounds a little bit more like pet. And pet sounds a little bit more like pat. And then, to top it all off, pat sounds a little bit more like pot. So this is what we call a vowel chain shift, where there's a series of vowels that are linked to each other, and they all seem to be changing in tandem. Another example, I'll give you different words. Disc, desk. So disc sounds a little bit more like desk. So even though no one's saying a floppy disk, if they were these days, it would sound more like a floppy desk? Yep. There's a couple other words, like milk, for example. Mm-hmm. Milk comes out sounding like milk. Milk. That's the direction the, the I sound is going in. So I is sounding a little bit more like eh. Uh, hill is becoming pronounced like hell. With, slightly like with. Slipped, slept, like I, I slept on the ice. But slept is now sounding like? Slapped. Right. So I slept on the ice, and afterwards I slapped like a baby. Yeah, that's right. And I used not a pillow, but a... A pillow. A pillow. I slapped like a baby on a pillow. You're sounding so Canadian right now. <laughs> awesome. Is the Canadian accent changing uniformly from Nova Scotia to Prince Edward Island to British Columbia? 
It seems to be. The places that have been studied so far, uh, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Toronto, Montreal, Halifax, St. John's, all of these cities are in different regions of Canada, and the Canadian vowel shift has been found in each one of them. So there are regional differences, and those regional differences are staying the same, but there's a commonality between all these regional dialects, and the Canadian vowel shift has been found in each one of them. Why is the Canadian accent shifting? Well, we can think about our, our the Canadian accent or Canadian English as having an inventory of vowels. So there's a set number of vowels in our dialect. In the low back position, or the low back vowel, when our tongue is retracted and low, we have the sound ah. And in Canadian English, there's only one sound back there. In many varieties of uh, American English, we find two vowels. We have caught, C-O-T, and caught, C-A-U-G-H-T. If I was from New York City, I might say caught versus caught. Caught. You got it. So in Canada, there's just that one vowel. So that, we, we call that a merger. These two vowels have merged over time. Because of that merger, there's more space, there's more room for our pronunciations to vary. And so if we have more room, we have more chance for uh, variation. And, and when that variation gets picked up by younger generations, the vowels begin to shift. They get to advance further and further in younger generations. Okay, so it's like evolution. Yeah, exactly. That's a great technical definition, but why does it change? Uh, you gave me the the linguistic in the back of our throats and tongue answer, but is it that either people are generally speaking with less care? Are their mouths more relaxed? Are they trying to ape a style of speaking that seems cool or is prominent in mass media? I mean, this is not just Canadian accents. This, I'm sure, is true of accents everywhere. But why do accents change? And why do people adopt these different ways of saying vowels or any other sound? A lot of it has to do with uh, identity reasons. Mm -hmm. We present ourselves in some way. Some ways we do that through the clothes that we wear, the color of our hair, the way we cut our hair. We can do that linguistically as well. So we choose, either consciously or subconsciously, within the range uh, or from the range of variation that's out there in Canadian English or in language in general, and we say, this is how we want to, this is the range of variation that we want to pick up on and, and, and use to identify ourselves. So the Canadian vowel shift, like many changes in progress, is led by a younger female base. And in the places that were studied, the younger females were always more advanced than the younger males. <laughs> Something has to do with gender and social identity of the speakers. And that's on one level, but it, once the shift gets to a, a, a point where it becomes salient, where people can hear it and pick up on it and point to it and say, oh, that sounds different. So if you're in, in high school and you're of a nerd group and you say, well, we're nerds, we don't, we don't want to be associated with the jocks, we might not consciously, but we might decide that certain vowel pronunciations are, are representative of the way we speak, and we use those vowels and we use those pronunciations to get that identity across. Are you just pulling that at random, or is there an actual nerd vowel correlation? <laughs> I'm not actually pulling it at random. There is, there's a few studies done on subcultures within the high school. There's a study done by Mary Buckholtz on nerd girls, yeah. and a study done by Penny Eckert on nerds and jock and other subgroups within the high school. So 
these things happen on a very micro level. Like these, these things get negotiated and resolved within the high school. So I wouldn't be able to pick out a nerd vowel. I'd have to go into the high school and figure out who are the nerds and what do they sound like first. So, and it can vary from location to location as well. It's not always going to be the same from one high school to the next. Yeah, I would say a nerd vowel would be like the O with a slash through it or something from Tolkien. That would be a good nerd vowel. Then the heavy metal group would have oo with an umlaut. Yeah, the Motley Crue way. Right, right. Yeah. Paul Dedecker has noticed and been noting a change in the Canadian accent. He's a professor in the linguistics department at Memorial University of Newfoundland. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. Shaving, you got two choices. Choice one, kill your face. Just gash it up. World War I, trench warfare. Not a good, not a good choice. Choice two. Spend a billion dollars. All right, I'm exaggerating. A million. I think that's true. In a lifetime, if you shave like seven times a day. Anyway, my point is that razors are just way, 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 way too expensive. And this is where a higher quality razor that is affordable comes in. His name is Harry, and he's giving you harrys.com razors. Harrys.com was started by two guys passionate about creating a better shaving experience for all men. I am one of those men. I use the foaming gel. I used to use just the regular, but man, does that foaming gel foam. Do I need to tell you that Harry's bought a blade factory in Germany? Does that help things given my recent history with the Germans? I forgive. I do forgive. And I've always said the Germans are really good when it comes to efficiency and blades. They cut out the middleman. They give the savings to you. And the kit starts at just $15. It includes a razor, it includes three blades, and it includes your choice of Harry's shave cream or the foaming gel. You know what I think about the foaming gel? As an added bonus, you get $5 off your first purchase when you use my code GIST, H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter coupon code GIST at checkout. You get that $5 off and you start shaving smarter today. The Iranian nuclear deal will not be held up by Congress. The Senate has already failed to pass a couple resolutions of disapproval. It looks like the agreement negotiated by the P5 plus one is going through. You know the P5 plus one, right? They're the permanent five members of the Security Council, and the one is Germany. Well, it turns out the P5, China, France, UK, Russia, US, they're also the only five countries designated nuclear weapons states by the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. They all have nuclear weapons. There are a couple other countries that also have nukes. India, Pakistan, North Korea, Israel. They're not supposed to have nuclear weapons. But what are you going to do? I mean, you're going to tell them that? Those guys have nukes. And then there's the curious case of South Africa. South Africa once had nukes. And they still have the highly enriched uranium that will allow them to produce nukes. And the question is, why? Why do they have this? That was one of the issues that Douglas Birch of the Center for Public Integrity got into. Hello, Doug. Yeah, hello. So let's start with that question. Um, It was the racist apartheid regime that started the program. But why does the current country of South Africa still have nuclear materials? I'd just like to make sure we get it straight that South Africa does not have nuclear weapons. It doesn't have bombs sitting in a basement someplace. Right. What it does have is about a quarter ton of highly enriched uranium. This is the stuff that we're trying to keep Iran from making. Because once you have enough highly enriched uranium, say about 60 pounds, you can make a bomb. It isn't that difficult. So 
there's a couple of other countries that have large amounts of bomb fuel, and the U.S. is also worried about, like Japan, like Belarus. So these are, that makes you a, a a virtual nuclear state, is one way of putting it. Mm -hmm. So these states are of, wor of a worry because number one. They might, who knows, they might someday decide, I want a nuclear weapon. So I'm going to take this stuff that I have in my storage, in storage, and I'm going to build a nuclear weapon. And the states themselves know this as well. It gives them a certain status in the world. Another worry for the United States and many of its other countries in the world is that these stocks of highly enriched uranium in countries that don't have weapons could be stolen and used by terrorists to make improvised nuclear devices. And this is a very acute worry. It was always, it's been, uh, it became a more urgent worry after 9-11. And they've done, made, there's been a lot of progress in reducing these stocks in many countries. Where they haven't made progress, it's been a worry. And one of the worries, for, at least from the United States perspective, is South Africa, because they, they have this material. They gave up their weapons back in, the, in 1990, 1991, and they've dismantled them, but they kept the fuel to make them. And when you have the fuel to make them, you can make them again. So what does it argue? What does the South African government argue in favor of keeping them? Well, at first, the South African government had a plan to use this highly enriched uranium to make medical isotopes. They were using in a, them in a reactor called the Safari One reactor. And they were slowly, slowly reducing the amount of enriched uranium that they had by producing medical isotopes, the kinds of things that we use to to do diagnostic tests and tests for heart disease and, and for other illnesses. And they, they, were, they very gradually reduced it, this stock. But then they decided in 2005, they announced they were going to switch to using uh, low-enriched uranium, which is not useful for bomb fuel. And so they ended up conserving, again, about a quarter ton of this, of this material of the highly enriched stuff. And the highly enriched stuff, that, that quarter ton represents about it represents about the same number of bombs that they had when they dismantled them in 1991. Okay, so where does it, where, what's the status? How far along is the United States in convincing or setting up a protocol for South Africa to rid itself of uh, this nuclear uh, material? Well, I mean, the United States, again, has been trying to persuade South Africa to get rid of it basically since after 9-11. Then in 2007, there was a raid on the Palandaba Research Center, which is the location for the vault that holds this quarter ton of highly enriched weapons uranium. And that really, really disturbed the U.S. So the U.S. made a, a bigger push to press South Africa to give up the material. So the Bush administration pushed on this. The Obama administration made, one of its, made this issue one of its nonproliferation priorities. And the South Africans have basically so far refused. And it, there doesn't seem to be much hope that they will agree to this in the near future, in the next few years. Why is it the United States job? I mean, I'm glad someone's doing it, but why? Why us? Well, isn't it always us? Yeah. I mean, in a way, uh, it's, it's because I think the United States has thought more deeply about the threat of nuclear armed terror. I don't think the U.S. is really worried that Jacob Zuma or anyone else is going to build a nuclear arsenal. I mean, South Africa has the diplomatic and the kind of prestige advantage of having the material, giving it the, giving it this potential. But it has no enemies. Yeah. They don't really have any powerful enemies in, in the region, or the, militarily, they're the strongest country on their continent. But 
What the U.S. is worried about is that a raid like this 2007 raid on Pelandaba, which was highly sophisticated, which was well-planned, which had, there was disturbing evidence that it was something that was, um, that it was targeting this highly enriched uranium. That is what the U.S. worries about. I mean, it worries, it, it is worried that this material might be stolen somehow. Now, why does the U.S., let's get back to your question, why does the U.S. in, in particular worry about this? Well, I think the United States sees itself as, the, as one of the prime targets for terrorists around the world, and I don't think that, I mean, there is some evidence that, that that could be true, but I, th I think the United States does feel that any, that a the loss of this kind of material anywhere is a threat to the United States directly. Douglas Birch, senior national security correspondent for the Center for Public Integrity. Thank you so much. Right, thank you. Shopping is not that much fun. Stores are crowded. Or if they're empty, maybe those stores stink. You ever you ever go online? You try that thing? Yeah, you can get a piece of clothing that you don't know if it fits. Here's how to do it. It's something called the trunk club. It relies on two principles. One, you want convenience, and two, you want expertise. So what they do is they pair an expert with you and they send you a trunk full of clothes. At trunkclub.com slash gist. You answer simple questions about your style, your preferences, your size, and you're assigned an expert stylist. They curate the clothes. They have the best premium brands. You approve what you like. And then a trunk arrives at your doorstep filled with hand-picked clothes that are perfect for you. They really are hand-picked by a person, by an actual expert. I'll take this one. I'll take that one. Nitz doesn't look good on him. Maybe a belt. Try the clothes on, keep what you like, and then return what you don't like in the prepaid trunk. The club's about the trunk, all right? The clothes are the clothes. They're good clothes. They're going to ship them to you. You try them on. You give them back. It's like you know, having one of those personal shoppers, but you don't even have to go to the store and you're not obligated to spend anything. That's the thing. You just try it. It's it's not a subscription service. There are no hidden charges. There's no catch. You understand it. I know you understand it. You're smart. You just listened to a segment on South African nukes and you got that. And now you can get the trunk club. Here's how you do it. Right now, the entire styling service that they have that I told you about is free. The shipping's free. You only pay for the clothes you keep. Go to trunkclub.com slash gist to try it out. It's the last time I'll say it. Trunkclub.com slash gist for a trunk filled with clothes that you'll love wearing. And now the spiel, Biden time. Joe Biden, in a lovely and touching interview, told Stephen Colbert that he still dwells on the death of his son, Beau. He admitted that his state might leave him too exposed, too raw, as a man in the political arena, should he run for president. I don't think any man or woman should run for president unless, number one, they know exactly why they would want to be president, and two, they can look at the folks out there and say, I promise you, you have my whole heart, my whole soul, my energy, and my passion to do this. And, and I'd be lying if I said that I knew I was there. Biden on Colbert, shockingly frank and noble. That was a CNN headline. Mother Jones called it raw and emotional, and it was all of those things. Another word that got attached to it was authentic. Here's John Heilman on Face the Nation. One way you do project authenticity is you go on Stephen Colbert, as Joe Biden did this week, and you give an interview like that. 
that that comes across as to everyone who watched it as human, real. Gwen used the word anguished, but uh, funny at points. That, that again, whether you like Joe Biden or not, you couldn't watch that interview and not say that's the real deal. Heilman's co-panelist on Face the Nation, Peggy Noonan, went further. And I think if Biden got in, I must tell you, I think within two or three days, he'd be up 20 points. I think he'd be such a serious contender. And over on Meet the Press, fellow conservative David Brooks similarly gushed. I thought it was one of the most beautiful moments in American politics in the last couple years. Uh, We've had so much disgust, so much fear. There was love. That was just an expression of love. And then yesterday, writing in the New York Times, Brooks proclaimed that the Colbert interview had made him, Brooks, reconsider a column he'd written saying Biden shouldn't run. That one Colbert interview, a beautiful and compelling interview, has made a bevy of pundits recast Biden within the last five days. He's gone from retread to refreshing. My problem with this analysis isn't just that it's wrong. One interview does not change all the flaws of a Biden bid, namely the fact that this is an electorate yearning for change and he is thoroughly familiar. And one interview doesn't change the fact that despite the second server kerfuffle, Hillary Clinton is still the most formidable non-incumbent candidate a party has ever put forward in the modern political era. The problem I have is with the pundits themselves. Just how replicable is this anecdote. It's a touching human story about the death of your son. So yeah, when when Joe Biden is opening up about being a father who outlives his boy, yeah, in Brooks's words, it's a beautiful moment. But that seems to be a very rare circumstance where the political punditocracy allows a candidate to have a moment. Other politicians have had genuine moments. Was Barack Obama not being frank and noble? The time when after Trayvon Martin was killed, he talked about imagining his sons and how he'd talk to them. The left loved his remarks, but the right tore them up. Just like at least half the political class contextualized genuine remarks that he made at the funeral in Charleston. How about when Jeb Bush talks about his passion for issues important to Latinos as the husband of a Latina woman, as the father of children with Latino heritage? Is that seen as genuine? No, it's seen by his critics and the press in general as politics. To a large extent, it is politics. Just like if Biden were to attempt to campaign on his tragedy, it would be called out as calculating. My problem has nothing to do with Joe Biden or even the yearning for authenticity or the frustration with Hillary Clinton for being so calculating. My frustration is with the pundit class who cry out for the real but enforce strictures that punish reality. They're constantly on gaff control. They force candidates onto the script. It's the only way the message can break through. And heck, what about soundbite culture? In case you didn't notice, one of the strengths of that compelling 20-minute interview was that it was 20 minutes. So what's more likely, that Joe Biden runs for president and his unscripted moments are celebrated for their humanity, or like every candidate ever, they'll be picked over and read into for every less than perfectly calculated phrase. Eight and a half years ago, Biden was being unscripted when he talked about Obama and said, quote, I mean, you got the first mainstream African-American who is articulate and bright and clean and a nice looking guy. I mean, that's a storybook, man. Was that regarded as authentic? Well, here is Meet the Press from two weeks 
two weeks ago. There's a video Clinton of Joe Biden calling Barack Obama clean and articulate, uh, clean and, articulate right. and that's not going to go over <laughs> really well. Right. That was one remark eight and a half years ago. I think it was really innocent and the motivation behind that remark was a good one. And yet it's still used as a cudgel by the Washington press corps. Why should we think that other remarks, except for maybe expressing grief at the death of his son, won't be in the same way punished? And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is here to produce the gist and to tell you that Canadians do not care for hockey. Andy Bowers is the GIST's executive producer and a man with a message about Texans. They're pretty conflicted about being from Texas. You gotta ask a lot of follow-up questions to elicit from them that they are, in fact, from Texas. He knows. The GIST, soon to be live-streamed into Norway with one simple message. Try the fish. We know you Norwegians eschew seafood, but give it a try. Defy stereotypes. And thanks for listening.